turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. There's a lot today. We'll give them a minute. So this is actually the third time I've preached from this passage. Strange, because I've been preaching not even a year and a half. This is the third time I preach from this passage. So how is it that I come to this passage three times? And it's one of those things that you never want to do. You counsel someone, you walk with them through trials in their life, and then you get a call that they've taken their life. So almost one year ago today, one of my best friends took his life. He knew the Lord, but he also knew his suffering and his pain and his depression more than anything. Going through a divorce, losing a job, uh, feeling like everyone turned their back on him. And this is a week after my ordination, and I find out that he killed himself and that he left letters. And he had a letter for me, told me about the impact that I had on his life, that I was the only person in his life who pointed him to Christ in the midst of all this. And would I preach for his funeral? Back up a couple months when he was going through this and he had contemplated suicide many times, and I met with him and counseled with him, I sent him to the book of 1 Peter. Read through 1 Peter. Because the theme of 1 Peter is hope through suffering. And I wanted him to open 1 Peter and just get enamored with chapter 1, like I am. Chapter 1, starting in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that more precious than gold it is tested by the fire may be found to result in praise and glory in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. I wanted him to get that. But he fixated on chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, which we're going to look at today. He fixated on humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him before he cares for you. I wanted him to see, look at all the blessings we have in Christ. Look at the amazing benefits of the gospel. But all he could think about was he was humbled and he was broken. He just needed to hear that God cared for him. Because he believed the lies of the enemy. He believed you're a failure. You will never do what you love again. He believed that no one likes you and everyone will be better off if you were just dead. And the words of being humbled under the mighty hand of God were like a weight around his neck. And the words that God cared for you, sadly, were not enough encouragement for him. And the sad reality for many of us is that we know what it's like to be humbled. We know what it's like to be burdened with our own sin. We know what it's like to feel the weight of our own frailty. But we don't embrace the promises of the gospel that are the other half of that coin. That in sin there is judgment and death, but in Christ there is life everlasting and the grace of God covers all of our sins. Even though I told him over and over and over and over again, the weight of his sin just became too much. And so as we look at this passage this morning, if you're struggling or you know someone who is struggling, 
Sadly, don't be like every other person in his life who tried to give him moral solutions. Just work harder. Just try better. Be a nicer guy. Point them to Christ. Point them to where real hope comes from in the midst of suffering. Encourage them in God's word. And let them know that trials are for a little while. The glory of God and his grace are forever. Let's look at this passage together. I'm going to read it and we're going to walk back through it. Starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering that are being experienced by your brotherhood uh, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how can we even begin to understand what it means to be held by your mighty hand? How can we even begin to understand all grace? How can we ever begin to understand your glory? We start by understanding our sin. And we know that that glory cannot come from us. Lord, help us to look to you and to rest in you in the midst of trials. Help us to see through your word this morning that in you there's peace and there is hope and there is strength and there is establishment that nothing else on earth or in our lives can offer. And that, Lord, we would see our trials and our circumstances as temporary and your glory as eternal. Amen. So before we get into our passage, there's a couple quick observations. Um, In this text, there are three commands and one encouragement. We're going to look at those this morning. Um, And also, when we read a text like this, we tend to insert ourselves into it. We tend to think, well, this is about me humbling myself, and this is about um, me resisting and me standing firm, and then what God's going to do for me. But I want you to see that even though this is about us, the focus is not on us. I'm going to do a little exercise like we, like we normally do. Um, when we sit in our Bible studies, what is the first thing we always do? We look for repeated words. In verses 6 and 7, what is repeated? Most, more than anything else. You might gloss over it. When I edit the sermon, I'll take this silence out and make you guys seem smarter than you are. What would you say? He. He. This verse about humility and this verse about anxiety is all driven by God. Look at verse 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. In the midst of humility and anxiety and suffering, it is about God not our suffering. And as we continue, verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful for your adversary, because he seeks someone to devour. 
So we are to resist him. Now the focus changes, again, not from us, but to our adversary, the devil, who is very active in this. And then verses 10 and 11, which we will finish with, comes back to, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore you, and to him be dominion forever and ever. You see this? God is the beginning. Satan's influence is there, but God has the final word. And so in this passage that may be about us and our own suffering, it's about spiritual warfare between God and our adversary. And we're going to see that this morning as we walk through this text. So we start in verse 6. Humble yourselves. What does it mean to humble yourselves? It means to start with a simple phrase. that God is God and I'm not. Probably one of the hardest phrases we will ever learn. Because back to the garden, back to day one, the temptation was to be like God. And in our lives, when we don't have the answers, when things aren't going our way, we want to be God. We want all the answers. We want everything tied in a nice, neat bow. And we want to not have to suffer anymore. God is God, and we are to humble ourselves before him. We must begin with the fear of the Lord. We must begin with reverence for God and who he is. Because unless we're humbled before God, and remember last week we ended with acting with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Unless we humble ourselves before God, we cannot be humble with one another. And we cannot see our trials in their real perspective because we're only thinking about ourselves. But if first we know that he is God and he is good and he reigns, then our trials get put into perspective. And I love this Old Testament language here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I don't know, for some reason, whenever I hear this, uh, Isaiah uses it a lot. It's used a lot in the Psalms. I picture one of those uh, incredible Hulk green hands. It's just this big, massive hand, except it's not green, but it's a lot bigger, and it's glowing. And God's mighty hand is holding all things. And I can submit to him because he's strong. You know that little kid song that he holds the whole world in his hands? It's theologically accurate. It's encouraging. My God is so big, he can spin the world on his finger. We can take rest in his mighty hand because at the proper time he will exalt you. This is important for us to look at too because we want things in our timing, but God's timing is the proper time. And so for us, we're impatient and we want the results now. We're results people. I want my food in 30 minutes or less, or if I'm in a drive-thru, I want it in three minutes or less, or I'm complaining because you took 45 seconds from my life that I want back. We want everything in our time, but God's proper timing is perfect. And I say this a lot, and if you heard me say it before, it's okay because we need to remember this. I need to be reminded of this, that God doesn't teach us through the results. We only want results. God teaches us through the process. And until his time is is right, you're still in the process. And he's still sanctifying you, and he's still growing you in the midst of these trials. And so we remember when, why is this not done yet, God? Why isn't this complete? Why haven't I been recognized? Why am I still suffering? He's working. He's working in you, and he's working it to his perfect conclusion, even if we don't understand, because we go back to point one. God is God. And I'm not. Because our exaltation 
comes from the Lord and not our circumstances. At the proper time, he may exalt you. Many times we are like crabs in a bucket and trying to pull ourselves to the top, when in fact we are to be servants of all and to be humbled, so that when that feast comes, our Lord says, good and faithful servant, sit here in the honored place, because you've been humble and you love me and I will exalt you. That's the basis for all of this. So if our humility is in the Lord and our exaltation comes from him, then we have no problem saying what's in verse 7. We can cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. This word anxiety in the Greek is, is a, a picture of being pulled in different directions. You ever feel like that? Like, I want to go here, but the trials in my life are pulling me here. I've got this fire I have to put out over here. My anxiety pulls me into different directions. Our God is not a God of chaos. God does not pull us into different directions. He's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path that is straight and it is easy. But our anxieties and the things of this world will pull us apart. Cast all of your anxieties on him. You mean all? Like everything? Even those deep, dark things that I don't want to let go of? Yes. Cast all your anxieties on him. Can you do that? Can you let go of the things that you've been holding on to, the things that God is still not Lord over in your life? Can you cast all of them on him? Why? Because he cares for you. You ever meditate on that, what it means that God cares for us? The creator of the universe put all things into existence, holds the stars in the sky, and he cares. He hears you when you cry. He hears you when you cry out to him. And he wants you to cast your anxieties on him. Can you do that? There are rare moments when we can fully cast all our anxieties on him. But have you ever felt that peace that passes all understanding? When you have no more strength left, you have no more fight left. You have been completely humbled by your circumstances. And God lifts you up in his mighty right hand. Peter's setting the stage here for what comes next. Because that is what we need to remember. Because remember, uh, we've been going through this book in 1 Peter for a while, and he's speaking to the persecuted church. They are witnessing Christians being torn apart. They're witnessing Christians being persecuted and tortured for their faith. And Peter understands, and he tells them over and over and over again that there is suffering, but there is hope. And our hope is eternal, even though our suffering is temporary. So the first command is humble yourself before God. The second command is be sober-minded, be watchful, be ready. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. We're to be watchful and be ready. Because our God is not sleeping. Our God is not lounging back while we're struggling here on earth and neither is our enemy. So we should be sober-minded and watchful and vigilant because our adversary, and this term is a Greek term for your opponent in a court. So our adversary, this wicked, corrupt prosecutor, is prowling around waiting for us to slip up. Our accuser. Satan's main tool is accusation. 
Satan's main tool is to take truth and twist it against God and against us. Peter refers him to a roaring lion. Imagine you're a first century Christian reading this, who had seen your brother or sister be thrown to a lion. They refer Satan to this roaring lion who's waiting to devour you. Because Satan prowls around. Remember the story of Job? Remember in the first chapter of, of Job, and there's this weird conversation between God and Satan, like where does this take place? Like, is there some special court where Satan can just uh, approach God? And what is Satan doing? He's walking to and fro on the earth. This lion is prowling around, and what's he doing? He's putting out accusations. Job, this guy over here, what's he do? He accuses Job to God. He'll only serve you if you keep blessing him. Job's blessed. He would never serve you if everything fell apart. He continues to do the same thing. He devours us by accusing God to us the same way he did with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? You think God cares about this? This is too small for him. God forgot about you. Trust in yourself. It's hopeless. Give up. Satan is the accuser. Satan also accuses us to ourselves. You did that again? You're hopeless. You're worthless. God could never love someone like you. Everyone's looking at you. Everyone knows how much of a failure you are. These were the lies that my friend believed and that were spinning in his head like a little hamster wheel over and over and over again and believed all these accusations. Look where the places that Satan's attacks occur and are successful. Who does he devour? Those who are so fixated on themselves. The two ends of pride. Those who exalt themselves in their own strength, in their own ability. And Satan knows, yeah, I know where to get you. Because you're in your own strength. And if you're in your own strength, God's going to let him sift you a little bit like he did to Job. And the other end of, of, of pride is putting yourself down, saying, everything is my fault. I'm everyone's problem. I can't do anything right. Both are pictures of pride. Because as C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking about yourself less. Humility is is not just putting yourself down, but taking yourself out of the picture and resting in the mighty hand of God. And recognizing that there is a war going on. And our enemy, the roaring lion, is still prowling around. He'll be put in his cage once and for all, one day. But for now, we need to be aware and to be watchful. But thankfully... That lion is on a leash. And Aslan, the mighty lion of Judah, will devour that lion one day. And that is what we rest in in the midst of our suffering and our attacks. So Peter continues, resist him, firm in your faith. 
This is another one where we, we, we read this, resist him. Our first thing that comes into our mind is, okay, I have to resist him. What do I have to do? My strength, what do I do to resist the devil? We know people who do this, right? People who shake their fists at Satan. I just, I, I, I just kind of watch and just wait. Because the archangel Michael, the most powerful of all the angels, wouldn't resist Satan on his own without calling on the name of the Lord. So remember, this is spiritual warfare. So how do we resist him? How do we stand firm in the faith? You learn this as a kid, hopefully the whole armor of God. But I want to walk through this passage. Uh, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 6 for me. How do we re- resist him? I mean, there's so much wisdom in Ephesians chapter 6. And there's so many parallels to our passage. Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to start reading in verse 10. So how do we resist him? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his strength and his might. We resist him in our own strength, right? Of course not. In his strength and his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Peter's saying the same thing. How do we resist him? How do we stand firm? By putting on the whole armor of God. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan, our adversary, and his minions are our real struggle, our spiritual warfare. The solution, verse 13, therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Same language, same concept. In the armor of God is where our strength comes from. Watch as we walk through this. Not one of these things has anything to do with our circumstances. Not one of these things has anything to do with who's coming against us. It's the gifts of God's grace that have been given to us. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. It must start with truth. In the, the Roman armies, the, the, the belt held everything together. The belt was what carried your sword, and it held your tunic together. The belt was what fastened everything together. If it's not fastened in God's word, if it's not held together first by that, everything else falls apart. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, it is not our courage, but God's righteousness that guards our heart and protects us. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You ever tried to fight? Uh, ladies, this is not for you, but guys, if you've been in a fight, you ever tried to fight without moving your, your, your feet? Rule number one of boxing, move your feet. If you're not moving, if the gospel is not on your feet, if you're not able to adjust it, what the, the enemy throws at you by applying the gospel to it, you will stand flat-footed and get knocked down. The gospel is our rooting, our sandals that are tied to our feet to keep us being able to adjust to what goes on around us. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith that which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Peter's talking about these attacks of our adversary. 
And it's not my strength. It's not my might. It's not some mantra. It is my faith. My shield, my rock, my Lord and Savior, who I put up as my guard. And take the helmet of salvation, covers your head, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When Jesus was tempted, when Jesus was accosted by the accuser in the wilderness, he applied the whole armor of God. He stood firm. He didn't lash out. He quoted scripture. And the powerful, living, active word of God was enough to send Satan on his way. And that is what we are to stay rooted in in the midst of these trials. Because, back in our passage in 1 Peter, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I've got good news and I've got bad news for you. One of the accusations of the enemy is that you are alone. The bad news is you're not alone. Everyone suffers, especially Christians. Especially if you wear the name of Christ, you will suffer. But the good news is you are not alone. We are not meant to go through these trials on our own and in our own strength. Suffering is not unique to me and it's not unique to you. You're not the first one who's gone through your circumstances and you won't be the last. And you won't be the last one to try to do it on your own strength. But we to be people who understand and share one another's burdens, mourn with those who mourn and celebrate with those who celebrate because our brotherhood in Christ has been bought with his blood, has been purchased into his family. And when they suffer, we suffer. And when they celebrate, we celebrate. But after a little while, Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you. But after a little while, this begins with an important phrase, because sufferings are not eternal. I know in the midst of it, it feels like it. I know when you're in the midst of a trial and things are difficult, and this person said this, or this happened to me here, it feels like the pain will last forever. Peter reminds us that after a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you. Look at these, look at these, these, these terms here. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, all grace, all blessings, all good things, his grace sufficient for all of my sin, all grace. His grace is so much as enough for my sin and yours. And everyone who has ever trusted in him, all grace is applied to them. That should be a weight of relief off of our shoulders. That God's grace is that encompassing. And remember, the focus is back on him, not us. His grace, he's the one who called you to his eternal glory. He didn't just call you to a nice life. He called you to eternal glory. The God of grace sharing his glory with us and has invited those who trust in Jesus Christ, their shield of faith, who rest in his mighty hand to come into his house and to share in his glory. 
Christ. Our only hope in life and death. The only name by which we can be saved. The only name that everything on earth will bow down to one day. He himself, this is God's action, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We're all longing for restoration. Because every religion on the planet recognizes one thing, that something is wrong and there needs to be a solution. And everyone will say, yeah, this world is not the way it's supposed to be, but I think this and I think this. And none of those answers are satisfying because it ultimately comes down to us and how much effort we can put forth. But you want real restoration? Jesus came to enter into the, to God's kingdom bring, coming forth here on earth. Restoration is when Christ comes again and restores all things to its newness. To get rid of sin and to get rid of pain and to get rid of suffering once and for all. And so if we have that in the forefront of our minds, our suffering that is for a little while is just that. It is for a little while. But the restoration that comes with Christ forever should be our encouragement. Because he confirms us. He exalts us. He strengthens us. Let us call on him for our strength. And he will establish you. We all want to be established. We, we don't want to be tossed to and fro. We, 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 want, to be, we want to be firm. We, know, we want to know what to expect. We want to know where our safety comes from and where our hope and our comfort comes from. He is our hope and our comfort. And the whole world could disintegrate around us. But he will establish you. For the sake of his glory. As we were working yesterday, we were talking about uh, how's everything going to end? And you, People love to talk about that, right? They love to talk about prophecy. All right, uh, when is Jesus coming back? And what's, what's up with uh, this demon and, and, this, and this dragon? And um, what about the Antichrist and all that? You know what my answer to that is? Who cares? I don't need to know. Because I know the one who's in control of it all. I know the last page. I know the end of the story. I know that he will ultimately make all things new. And he will ultimately establish me in Christ and his glory forever. So I don't care what happens. I don't have to fear the Antichrist. I don't have to fear the end of days because it's only for a season. And if you have the hope of the gospel, if you understand what Christ came to accomplish, if you understand that everything depends on him and who he is, none of that other stuff matters. Because the world will pass away. But his word won't. And he won't. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So there's a great contrast in this closing here. The contrast between suffering that is for a little while. God's grace, which is eternal. And Peter loves to do this. Peter loves to show contrast. He loves to show here's what suffering is over here and here's what grace and glory is over here. Grace has been the implicit theme throughout this entire letter. Even though the word is not mentioned much, it's mentioned a few times here at the end, but as you read through 1 Peter, there's suffering and then there's the gospel. There's suffering and then there's the gospel. There's suffering and then there's Christ. Grace is all throughout this letter. Because there is suffering. It's guaranteed. Jesus told us it was coming. 
there is grace that is more powerful and more present than that suffering if you can rest in God. And one of the biggest mistakes of the Christian life is divorcing these two. Is going through trials, going through fear, going through suffering, going through anxieties, and losing sight of the crown of glory. Believing the lie from our accuser that your suffering is all there is. That this will never end. This is how you will feel always. What you're feeling right now is the emotion that you're going to hold on to for the rest of your life. One of the biggest blessings and maturity in Christ is knowing that that's a lie. Is embracing the eternal promises of the gospel. That God is not only present in the midst of trials, but he is reigning and ruling and he cares for you in the midst of trials. We can rest on his grace for us. We see examples of this throughout our entire life. Anybody ever tried to run away from home? A lot, of, a, a, lot, a lot of hands in here. You, um, this is one of those stories that if you hang around long enough, my mom will, will, will tell you. So I'm going to tell it before she does. She's laughing back there. Um, but I don't know how old that was, four or five maybe. Um, you remember that, that feeling when you want to run away from home that your parents did something to you that was so egregious you could never forgive them. It would never get any better. And this is the worst I will ever feel. And so like any wise four-year-old, I got all my necessities. I put all my toys in a, in a pillowcase, and I stormed out the door, Huckleberry Finn style. At least he was smart enough to steal some food. Um, and I don't, even re- I don't even remember what it was like in that, that, that moment. I don't, I don't know, or excuse me, I remember what it's like, but I don't remember what it was over. I have no idea what I was so upset about that I had to storm out with. And we, fortunately, we grow out of that, right? Of course not. You ever talk to a teenager after a breakup? It's the same thing. Oh, Bobby from third period, he's my knight in shining armor, and I'll never find another one like him, and my life is over. (laughs) And of course, as adults, we grow out of that, right? Until we get looked over for that job we really want. Until our friends don't respond to us the way that we want, and we assume that it will never get any better and that I'm just going to write off everybody because I hate everyone. We still act like what we're going through at the time is going to last forever. But as adults, we can tell our children, and we can tell those younger than us, I've been there. I know what you're feeling. This, too, will will pass. And there's there's maturity in that. But as blood-bought children of the living God, we have the gospel that tells them where real hope and where real peace comes from, and that there's a reason why this won't last. We point them to Christ in the midst of their suffering. When it feels like nothing makes any sense, we tell them where real restoration comes from. We tell them where real confirmation comes from. We tell them where real strength comes from and where establishment comes from because his grace, his glory is sufficient for you, even you. And the gospel can be applied to every area of our lives in every situation. So before I close, I'm going to share a little story. Um, and just a, a confession. This is an email from an uncle of mine. If any of you have that uncle who sends you everything, um, just be very, very careful what you pass on and what you re- repeat because 
most things you may not want to pass on, but this one's safe, trust me. Um, so I don't know if this is true or not. It really doesn't matter. It's just a great example. So there's a uh, men's prayer breakfast in Ohio farm country somewhere. The guys are, are gathered, and w- the question was asked, would anyone like to pray? This old farmer stands up and says, sure, I'll pray. And he begins with, Lord, I hate buttermilk. <laughs> and so everyone's kind of looking around, like, all right, where is this going? And he prays on even louder, Lord, I hate Lord. I'm not going to do a bad southern accent for you guys. This won't, won't happen. So imagine the feeling in the room. This is his two first statements in his prayer. And he prays on, Lord, you know how much I hate white flour. So then the pastor's getting out of his seat. He's getting ready to, 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 to pull him out of there. And then he continues to pray on, and it does get better. But, Lord, when you mix them all together and bake them, I sure do love biscuits. <laughs> And so in his wise country wisdom, he closes the prayer like this. So, Lord, when things come up we don't like, when life gets hard, when we just don't understand what you're saying to us, we just need to relax and wait till you're done mixing, and probably it will be something even better than biscuits. (laughs) Our version is very similar to that. Lord, I hate trials. I hate anxiety. I hate going through these things. But let me rest in you. Let me be reminded of your mighty right hand, of your glory and of your grace. And when you're done mixing, glory is definitely better than biscuits. Just want to give you a couple things uh, to kind of take with you this morning. Like in this passage, our lives are not only revolving around ourselves, begins with God, and it ends with God. And Satan is prowling around for a while, but he's on a leash. And God's grace and his glory and his dominion is forever. So humble yourself before him. Because if you don't, the world, your flesh, and the devil will devour you. But his mighty right hand is stronger than all of our anxieties and fears, and he cares for you. Be watchful. Stand firm. You are not alone in Christ, and Christ only is their foundation and strength and blessed assurance for those who put their faith and trust in him. Sufferings are temporary, but God's grace is an eternal, unshakable inheritance, eternal glory that far surpasses temporary suffering. Instead of closing with a prayer this morning, I'm going to close from Ephesians chapter 3. And worship team, you guys can come back up. I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, because it sums up everything we've just been talking about. You can read through with me. I'm going to start in verse 14. I love the sound of flipping pages, by the way. So I'm going to let you guys continue to do that. So it's, a, it's a great exercise of getting your hands in God's Word. So Ephesians 3:14. Paul, in his great pastoral way, starts like this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength 
to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness to God. Not to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.